0: Before we dive in, I want to do one more thing, is just, again, connect the dots with our theology and our worship Uh, was struck. I was thinking about, as we were singing a lot of old hymns this morning, um, it is well with my soul. Um, being one of them, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Another one, um, we start with this catechism question that just seem very heady and and theologically right. Our Redeemer is Jesus, and He had to be both God and man. And we could talk a lot about why and rationally why, um, but our our day to day. Um, Hope and joy and comfort and perseverance are anchored in these theological truths, right? So woven in these songs like, uh, though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, though life gets really hard, let this blessed assurance control. Well, what is it? Well, it has everything to do with that Jesus is God and man, right? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul, and his own blood being shed for our soul is only able to save all because he's God. And it can only count for us because he's man. And so this is the ground of our day-to-day hope as sorrows like sea billows roll. And, uh, and, and even in Christ, uh, in, in, on Christ's solid rock I stand, it's... Uh, um, what is the line? Go back to the second verse. Katie, can I put you on the spot? I'm not going to think about it fast enough. we just saying, uh, when... Darkness veils his lovely face or seems to hide his face. I rest in his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Well, my anchor holds to what? Well, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Right, the only Redeemer for us is God, man, for us in our place. And so, again, our, I, I pray each week that our, our worship would be fueled by doctrine, but also that our doctrine would, would be expressed through worship. That they wouldn't be separate. So, anyway, thankful. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed too? Uh, one last thing that, you know, the Psalms say a lot of times: sing a new song, sing a new song. Um, sometimes we, we can think, well, that means we got to keep writing new songs, and it's good that we write new songs, but we can sing really old songs, and then they can be new songs, right? <clears throat> so we're singing this morning, though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this be blessed assurance control, and we're singing that as a new song, many of us, this morning, because we're thinking about this week and the things that those things pertain to this week and saying over those things, it is well with my soul, Right a new song. I put a new song in your heart this morning, in your mouth this morning with a very old song. Anyway, I think that's cool. I think it's a good reason to keep singing old songs. <clears throat> but here we are in Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have a Bible to follow along with. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep one, but our, our ushers, if you throw up your hand, our ushers will uh, bring one in. Anybody would like one? We're going to be in Mark 9 this morning. So, a couple of weeks back, we had our second reading service in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't know what those are, from time to time, as we preach through books of the Bible, we will commit a whole morning service to reading, if we can fit it, the entire book. If it's bigger, like the Gospel of Mark, we'll break it up, like we did, and do a big chunk to help us see the big picture see how all the little pieces fit together, and hopefully understand the mind and the purposes of the author, and, which, which ultimately is God, uh, more clearly. So two weeks ago, Jeffrey uh, did our reading service over here, read from Mark, uh, end of Mark 8, all the way through the end of chapter 13. <clears throat> and one of the shifts, I, I wonder if you noticed, because it really was obvious to me, uh, as Jeff was reading, that's different from the first half of the book of Mark, is the shift of Jesus' focus. Think about the first eight chapters from the time Jesus is baptized and he begins to minister. He's on a mission to to talk to who? Crowds, 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 right? He goes into that first town, Capernaum, and preaches in the synagogue. and And then as soon as it's done, he says, we need to go to other towns, right? We need to go to other towns and continue to preach. And he goes from crowd to crowd to crowd, from synagogue to synagogue and open air crowd, to open air crowd, and he's healing and he's casting out demons and he's proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of God is here. And it's just crowds, crowds, crowds need to know who I am and why I've come. And right at the the midpoint of the gospel where we stopped our first reading service and then where we began it uh, two weeks ago is this key moment where the disciples, Peter in particular the light goes on and he, he understands who Jesus is and he confesses. Jesus says, do you know, who do you say I am, Peter? Bless you. <laughs> Look at that smile. And uh, <clears throat> who, do I, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are, you are the Christ, the son of God. And then immediately Jesus says, essentially, you're right. And the son of man must suffer many things. At the hands of wicked man, he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. And at this point on, the focus shifts from crowds, crowds, crowds to disciples, 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 disciples. He's headed to Jerusalem. In fact, the handful of scenes that we keep getting in the Gospel of Mark where he's interacting with crowds, almost always, Mark makes it clear, he's on his way. He's on the journey as he's setting out to go and he might get sidetracked or asked a question or interrupted and he pauses and he interacts. But even then often he pulls back aside with his disciples and he teaches them more based on what happens. But his focus comes right into the 12 and he is just focusing in his attention on them and I think he's, he's doing that because he's preparing them for two things. He's preparing them for his suffering and His resurrection, because that still doesn't compute for them, right? That's why Peter, as soon as Jesus first says that, he pulls him aside and tries to rebuke Jesus for saying he's going to suffer. But he's also preparing him for something, them for something that Jesus hasn't explicitly told them, at least in the Gospel of Mark yet, and that's that he's going to be gone. That Jesus is about to pass the baton and physically ascend to the Father and be gone. That they are going to continue on what he's been doing for crowds, 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 crowds. And they're going to take this baton and they're going to do this. They're going to minister to crowds, crowds, crowds all the way out to the ends of the earth. They're going to start something that is going to extend around the globe, taking the message of the gospel everywhere. Will you, again, stop and think about that is just mind blowing. Jesus is about to hand this off. These 12, my church in the whole world, Jesus says, I'm going I'm to put that in your, your hands, right? Fishermen, you know, former tax collectors, uneducated men who keep getting, uh, not getting it, right? After the second feeding of, of the, the thousands and then they're in the boat and they're like, wait, we've got to bring bread. And they keep forgetting. And Jesus says, oh, you're so slow to understand. He's about to hand the ball off to them and go, That's crazy, but this is his plan that they are going to begin and then they're going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who preach and teach in his name, um, who who build up his church and and send missionaries out in his name after he's gone. And Satan's not going to just throw up his hands after the resurrection and go, well, I guess I I lost. Satan's going to attack Jesus' church. When Jesus is gone, Satan is going to relentlessly come after his church, right? Right? You know, Peter, in in 1 Peter, he says that Satan continues to prowl like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, right? He prepared his disciples in the the book of John. He says, you know, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and he's about to hand the baton to them. And they are going to take it with opposition, the same opposition that Jesus has faced. How on earth is that going to succeed, Right. That's, that's the question. And here we are downstream from them, 2,000 years. We are disciples who are because they made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples, and the, and the gospel has spread. And we're faced with the same thing. We're called here as this little congregation to be a, a light and a witness to the gospel, ambassadors for Jesus, speaking in his name, loving people, loving God and neighbor in his name and representing God in the world, in our community. And we're opposed by Satan who's bent on stealing and killing and destroying us and those that we would minister to. Jesus is gone physically. How is this going to be fruitful? How is this going to be successful? And what Jesus keeps getting after here is faith. Faith, right? faith. And faith is not just believing the right things about his identity. It includes that. But faith is a dependent posture. It is a yielding to Jesus that expresses the the belief about him in a dependency, in a a recognition that apart from you, we can do nothing. Hasn't that been the point of some of these miracles, right? Think about the feeding of the thousands, right? What is Jesus doing there? He's trying to, he's trying to, 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 to teach real faith, not just a You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So he says to them, here's thousands. You got no food with you to speak of. Go feed them. And they say, we can't feed them. And he says, oh, you can with me, right? possible for you, with me, not impossible, right? I was thinking it's not in this gospel, but um, in one of the other gospels, you know, Jesus, you know, comes to the disciples. They've been, a couple of them have been fishing all night, all night, all night, hadn't caught a thing. And they come to the shore and Jesus says, go out and put your nets out just one more time. And they say, listen, well, it doesn't say this, but in between the lines, they're saying, uh, you know, we're fishermen. We, we've been fishing all night. Uh, I think this is, is not the right time. He says, well, just do it anyway. And they haul in so much fish that the nets are breaking. They have to call back another boat. Well, what's the point of that miracle? Jesus is trying to say, well, it's not impossible for me. What what seems impossible and unattainable for you, I can do like that, right? And they're slow to learn this. So here we are in this first scene now as Jesus is heading uh, really toward Jerusalem. Uh, the, The disciples learn this lesson the hard way. Our utter dependence on the power of Christ through us to then represent him when he's gone. In fact, the backstory of this scene is Jesus has just been gone, right? Last week, uh, Dave was here preaching. And in that scene, where is Jesus with Peter and James and John? They're up on the mountain, right? He takes the three up and, and they have this amazing experience where Jesus gives them a glimpse of his divine nature and who he really is, as Dave put it, I think so so wonderfully, so that they might not forget that as they head back down into what's going to continue to be hard, right? That they would remember the Jesus that goes with us is not just a man. So they're gone. And the other nine are down the hill, down the mountain waiting, and this scene happens right here. They get themselves in trouble, and Jesus and the other three come back down to sort of mid-scene while they're in trouble. And there's lessons here for us, I think, and them about being ministers of the gospel in the world while he's gone. Let's read it. Matthew uh, Mark 9:14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, so that's Jesus and and the three, Peter, James, John, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes are arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and they greeted him and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, so the spirit that's in the boy saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Just pause for a minute. This is going to be a big point, but again, just this is this picture. Satan hates people. He hates people. We bear the image of God. God has, has created us to be, glorify, to be glorified through us and we've blown it and Jesus is here heading to the cross to redeem us because to, uh, to God, we are precious. This little boy is precious. And here's, Here's this, this spirit in Satan's name just, just pummeling this boy. I mean, it's just so visceral, the description, right? I mean, it's, it's like if you picture a little kid in here and someone just kept knocking him to the ground and, and punching him and pushing him into a fire and trying to drown him in water. And this dad is saying, since, my, my child, since he was a child, this has been happening. Satan is evil and he hates us. You can understand why this man is is weary and, and has doubts, right? So he looks at Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house with his disciples, they asked him privately, why could we not cast this out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let me pray, and then let's talk about these things. Lord, uh, you want us to be dependent. You want us to have a faith that's real, not just in word. Um, but from, from the heart, that we are dependent on you, relying to you, that our eyes are looking to you, that we know our need, we know the, your power, we know your goodness and your graciousness, your willingness to, to help and to rescue and to use us. Uh, Spirit, help us here to, to hear, understand, in the ways that, that you need, we need your help to reveal to ourselves um, how far we fall short of this kind of faith. I pray you'd show us in your mercy, and I pray you'd also then comfort us and encourage us uh, in your grace toward people with little faith. I pray that we leave here with faith that's grown a little bit more because we've gathered and, and because you've spoken to us through your word. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three points that I have. Number one, prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. They're connected. Hopefully you'll see through all these points there's this thread and we're going to try to tie them all together. But first is this, is that prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. Number two, prayerlessness is a cause of unfruitfulness. It's not the only cause of unfruitfulness, but it is a cause. Failure to pray, refusing to pray is a cause of unfruitfulness. And number three is that unfruitfulness reflects on Jesus. Unfruitfulness says something maybe even lies about the power of God or the power of the gospel. So prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. It's a cause of unfruitfulness. And and unfruitfulness reflects on Jesus. So let's take those. Number one, prayerlessness is a sign of faithlessness. What I think Jesus means by faithlessness when he says, oh, faithless generation... Um, isn't that they, they don't believe the right things necessarily about Jesus, but I think he has in mind faithlessness as, a, as an attitude of uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, an inclination not to go first to, to Jesus and his power, but an inclination that first goes to, I've, I've, I've got this, right? It's, it's misplaced faith. It's not an approach to life that is lived out of faith, but out of something else. Prayerlessness is an indicator of that. To the extent that we don't approach life and difficulty and challenges and problems and crises prayerfully, it indicates the the, the extent to which we don't approach life with faith. That God must be involved in this. It's just, it's just what we can do. Where do I see this in the text? Well, two places. First is this, is... Mark records Jesus' answer when, when they say the disciples, why couldn't we cast this demon out? In Mark, he records Jesus saying this, well, this kind cannot be driven out by prayer. You have that? Yeah. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So apparently they hadn't prayed. It doesn't say what they did, what their approach to this boy and the father was, but obviously they didn't pray. He says, if you had prayed, the implication is this demon would have come out, but, but this kind, he says, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, Matthew and Luke also tell the same story, recount the same scenario. And Matthew includes this little dialogue with the disciples as well. And when they say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? The part that Matthew includes, Jesus saying, is, well, because of your little faith. You couldn't cast it out because your faith was little. Well, then he, he, he's really clear. How little was it? Well, he says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So how much faith would it have taken for the disciples to, to, to be successful in this? Well, he says, if you had a great faith, like if you approached this with a faith like a grain of mustard seed, saying, God, help, um, you could have said, to, not this just mountain, but this demon, move and be gone, right? That's the implication. But their faith was littler than that. Right? I think she is essentially saying there was no faith involved in this equation, in this encounter, faith didn't enter into it. Prayer didn't, he's connecting the dots. Prayerlessness is a sign of an approach that's self-sufficient, right? It seems that the disciples didn't see they seem to think that they had this, right? That this was something Jesus had, had given them authority to do, and therefore they got this, right? I want to get back to that more in the second point, this this idea that that, that prayerlessness can lead to uh, to unfruitfulness, that can be the reason why they failed. Um, But just firstly, that the prayerfulness is an indicator of something, right? It, It points out an approach to life that's not from faith, I also think in in Jesus' exasperated response with the disciples, this is what he's getting at. I think his, oh, faithless generation uh, isn't to the man because the man here, even in the scene, hasn't revealed that he's got some unbelief, right? He's just come to Jesus and said, you know, your disciples couldn't do it, but you could. And that's when Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long must I bear with you? I think he's talking about his disciples. This is trying his patience, that they're not getting this kind of a dependence and the necessity of it. Our prayerlessness reveals the same thing, doesn't it? Mine does. I read this line a couple of weeks ago, a pastor named Daniel Henderson, who I ended up finding out later on, Eric Twisselman, one of our elders at La Mirada, grew up under his ministry to some degree, and he confirmed, he says, yes, if there was anything I remember about that that, that pastor, Daniel Henderson, was that prayer is necessary. But this was the line I came across from him. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. That's true, isn't it? Not praying uh, is often a sign that we feel sufficient. We don't need God in these things. About a month ago, I read this tweet from another pastor, Kevin DeYoung, and I wrote it down. It just nailed me. And it relates here. He said, to start the day without prayer is to suggest that the devil is feeble, God is irrelevant and we can handle things on our own. We don't think, often think that about just hitting the, the day, you know, getting our shoes on, hitting our work, hitting our email, hitting our, our you know, our to-do list, the chores in the house and, and, and just forgetting to pray. We don't tend to something, No, that really is communicating something. It's communicating that as I enter into this day, I have a pretty low expectation of an enemy who's against me, a pretty low expectation of the power that God has for me and, and the way he says that, the, uh, uh, that God is irrelevant, that, that, that by and large he, he doesn't pertain to the things I'm about to go through in my day and that generally speaking I can handle this, right? I do this all the time. I think you know, Being a godly husband and a patient and wise dad who keeps my cool and loves my kids in a way that points them to to their heavenly father and resisting temptation and and just doing the things that that are in my work I can handle this. (coughs) Two weeks ago on Monday, I was sitting down to start studying this passage to think about preaching at La Mirada. And about an hour in, I was thinking about this point that prayerlessness shows a lack of faith in my approach to my day. And it struck me, I hadn't even stopped and prayed about studying this passage. (laughs) I just had to close my Bible and I just pulled my chair and I'm like, God, help us, right? Help me. Prayerlessness is a sign of just an approach that just feels like I got this. What's even sadder to me is how often that life can show me I can't handle this and how slowly I'll still be to pray. Sometimes God brings us to a point where we just tap out, we give, we say, help, I, I can't do this. But it's amazing what a high threshold I can have for that, right? You know what I mean? You just keep trying something else. You just try something else. You try something else and finally it's a, oh, you know, God maybe is relevant here. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I can include him. I can, I can pray, right? And I think this is something of what happened here. Think about it. If the disciples never prayed, right? This, the, the demon never came out. Jesus says, you know, this kind would have come out with prayer. So they never prayed. So not only did they not start by praying when the man brought the son, but they never got to prayer. Obviously, whatever they were trying, I don't know, five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever they were doing and it just isn't working. They never got to a point, obviously, where, where, they, where they prayed and said, God, help. And we can do that. We can just keep trying and trying and placing our faith in some other effort or strategy or whatever as we approach, you know, fighting sin and killing temptation or ministering to other people or sharing our faith. And and and, and we can be so slow to go to prayer. <clears throat> and, and Jesus is calling us out on this. He's saying that's faithlessness. That's a faithless approach to life. So what should be our respond to Jesus calling us out for faithlessness? So this isn't just for the twelve. If if you can answer the question, do I struggle with prayerlessness in my life? You say yes. Then that means you struggle with faithlessness in your approach to life. And so Jesus is calling us out. And the response should be, well, more faith, right? That's what he says in Matthew. Well, it's because of your little faith. So the implication is, I want to see more faith from you. Jesus wants more faith, not little faith, but bigger faith or stronger faith. But we have to be careful about what that means, don't we? What does strong, big faith mean? There's a paradox to the way faith works, I think. The difference between little and big faith, faith isn't a skill that we just develop or a muscle that we just flex harder, spiritually speaking. It's a more accurate view of our neediness and the power and the willingness of God to respond. That's faith. Big faith isn't so much about let me say, oh yeah, well, let me say it in a different way because that might help you understand. Big faith isn't so much about how good I am at believing. If I could just believe gooder, right, then somehow, right, I would be more prayerful. But no, it's how small and needy I know myself to be and how strong I know God to be. Bigger faith is like, more like better eyesight than it is stronger or bulkier muscles, right? It's, it's, it's clearer view of what's true. And that's the paradoxical nature that big faith is actually deep dependence, right? Weak faith is very little dependence on God and a sense of I've got this, right? But big faith is actually weakness, right? So that's why it's it's paradoxical. I was thinking of the term prayer warrior, right? We use that term, oh, that that, that dear old lady, she's a prayer warrior. That grandma is a prayer warrior. And the term sounds so strong and super Christian, right? Prayer warrior, right? Zena, God, you know, I am a warrior. And, but think of prayer warriors that you know, who, people you would refer to as a prayer warrior. I bet you they're humble people, right? I bet you they're not real, just self-reliant, I've got this sort of people, but people who maybe through the course of life has really taught them and the Spirit has really made them increasingly aware, I don't got this. two people even this week who have encouraged me in that. One, uh, it was since I preached at Lomarada last week, but I got a a, a newsletter from missionaries that we support. I'm not even going to say their names because this gets recorded. goes on our website, so I want to make sure to keep that anonymous. But they serve in a country where it's dangerous to to be a Christian, let alone be a a missionary. And they're actually not even in the country that they had longed to be in because it's so dangerous there. They're in a neighboring country, and right now... um, uh, the husband wants is, wants a job teaching English at a university because there are a lot of folks from the country that they wish they could be at, at this university. And uh, they sent their, their most recent newsletter. I love it. It's very brief, clever kind of the way he writes it. But I want our, th- this, is, this is what's going on here. Uh, an awareness I want you to see of uh, where does our dependence need to be. So he wrote this. Badish news. Apparently there's a new rule in place for universities looking to hire English faculty. The new hires have to have a BA in English. I don't. So out the window goes my MA in linguistics, the full 10 years of teaching English that I have and the fact that it's my native language. No (laughs) BA in English, no go. So this is a huge blow for them. This is really what they've been counting on. So then he says, I say bad-ish news because the university actually wants to hire me and has applied for an exception to the rule. It's going to boil down, they say, to something in Arabic called wasta or clout. (laughs) If the university has enough of it and with the right bureaucrats, they'll be able to get the exception. I love the way he is thinking. I almost said his name. I love the way he's thinking right here. His next thought is this. He says, but here's the good news. We have wasta too. We have lost the two, not with bureaucrats, but with a father in heaven who delights to give good things to those who ask. We think this post with the university is a good thing and we're asking him for that exception. I love that he doesn't stop and go, oh, can't do it. The only way this is going to work is if the right bureaucrats who have the right clout, but no, we pray to the God who can turn the heart of kings, right? In other words, <laughs> big faith people are gospel people. When you think, what is it that will kill this, this deep instinct or just inclination that we have, I've got this, and drive us to our knees that our first response to life would be to look to God for help, to ask for help, to, to not make, think, treat him like he's irrelevant. Well, it's remembering our utter insufficiency to save ourselves, right? The whole reason Jesus is here right now, heading to the cross, is to rescue us because we're lost. We're, we're helpless, Apart from God becoming man, stepping in and intervening and, and saving us and doing what we were utterly helpless to do, we'd, we'd be nothing. And it doesn't end once we get, get forgiven. So then the rest of Christian life is just, th- you know, thanks, Jesus, for getting us this far. I'll take it from here and I'll call you if I have any snags, right? The whole Christian life is one of dependence because it starts with the realization of our dependence. That make sense? So how do we get there? How do we, as we we really confronted with then faithlessness and prayerlessness, what what is it that's going to grow our faith? Well, the man in the scene, the Father, actually helps us with that because he exhibits greater faith than the disciples had, a little bit, right? It's kind of feeble, but it's a little bit, and Jesus responds. The Father's response is like a model for what the disciples ought to have done, Right? So, Jesus calls the man. The man says, You know, but if you can help, and he says, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Sorry, one more side note. I want to I make, make sure we don't skip over this. We have time. That phrase right there, that sentence, All things are possible for one who believes. Uh, much damage has been done with this verse, right? All things are possible for the one who believes. I just want two things that that's not saying this is not a valid paraphrase of that verse if you believe you can do anything right that's joel osteen's twitter feed it is go go, go look it up if you believe enough you can do anything right our last scout pack meeting had a a little bit of that message there come on boys if you can believe it you can do it right well that's not what jesus is saying here that's not what he says at all he says uh, all things are possible for the one who believes he also doesn't say all things are guaranteed for the one who believes Right? So it's it's not, if you just believe enough, God is then obligated to answer your request in the way that you're asking. It's guaranteed. No, he says all things are possible. The reason I know that Jesus does not get, is not guaranteeing that prayer, faith, f- prayer and faith obligates God is that Jesus, at the end of this gospel, actually prays to the Father in the garden on his knees, sweating bullets. And you know how he starts his prayer? If anyone believes that God, all things are possible with God is Jesus, he begins his prayer, Abba, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Okay, so here's a man who believes all things are possible with God, right? On his knees, and he says, um, he basically says, if there's any way to, to, to remove this cup from me, and yet not what I will, but what you will. And the answer is no, there there isn't another way. And and Jesus yields to that, right? So so I I can't believe that Jesus, he's saying to this man, if you just believe enough, you're you're guaranteed your answer. That's not the point. I think what he's saying to the man is essentially this. um, uh, For the one who believes in me, your faith is absolutely in in the right place, Right? If you are trusting in me, you've got it in the right place because I am and my heavenly father is the one for whom all things are possible, right? So do you believe in me? He's calling the man to recognize that in him. And so the man has this heartfelt cry. I believe, help my unbelief. Right there, that prayer, I think that that is where we're at in, prayer, in our prayerlessness. That's how we respond to prayerlessness. We begin to pray right there. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't think our prayerlessness is because we don't believe at all. It's that our prayer is mixed with doubt, right? Or our faith is mixed with doubt, right? Lots of stuff happens from week to week that erodes the sort of faith that drives us quickly to our knees in prayer, right? And we start there. The man says, Jesus, help my unbelief. And here's a question that struck me. How did Jesus answer that father's prayer? Not the prayer, heal my, my son, but he says to Jesus, help my unbelief. I think Jesus actually answers that prayer for him. What does Jesus do? Does he download, somehow, sort of spiritually send into the man faith? He's just like the man's faith, all the time. son just feels like he trusts Jesus more. It's just growing in it. No. He heals his son, gives him back his son. He shows his power and his his compassion and his character. And, and, and do you think the man went away with less faith or more faith in who Christ is? More, right? I believe, help my unbelief. It's just this mustard seed faith and Jesus honors it, heals the man's son and, and guaranteed this man's faith grew. His belief grew. This is why I think uh, for us to just try to, To have faith, our faith grow and prayerfulness grow apart from the scriptures is really, really hard, if not impossible. Because if it's a matter of seeing more clearly who God is and who we are, then I need God's word to to remind me of that, to show me that so that I can see God clearly. That's what's going to make me trust him and turn to him and say, help my unbelief. All right, so that's all we got time for that. Prayerful, prayerlessness is a cause of, of, or is a sign of uh, faithlessness. Number two, uh, prayerlessness is a cause of unfruitfulness. I want to say it's not the only cause. There are other reasons. Sometimes we don't see fruit that we're looking for, results that we're looking for, whether that's in my life, <laughs> God, slowness to, to kill sin victory over temptation, struggles, right, or whether it's slow to see fruit. I'm sharing my faith at work, and I'm telling someone, and it just keeps hitting against a wall, and I'm prayerful about it. I'm waiting, and I'm watching, and waiting, and watching, and waiting, and there's no fruit. Sometimes that happens even when there's sincere prayer of faith, right? Sometimes in God's timing, in God's way, we don't see the fruit that we're looking for, but I think it's safe to say that the blame of a lot of unfruitfulness individually um, and, and, co- and corporately in, in the church is, is because of prayerlessness. It can result in a, a, a powerlessness or like a, a, a spiritual impotence, right? Right. Christian life that just is is, is is very small and very faithless and very little fruit and very little evidence of something radically different than just the world or a church community that that, that evidences is the same, I think is often because of prayerlessness in part. I came across this, this little excerpt from uh, R.A. Tory. He was the first dean at Biola, first pastor of Church of the Open Door in L.A., um, Torrey uh, Institute at Biola is named for him. And he was writing about this. Uh, It's a little bit long, but I want want to read the whole thing because he's writing decades back and it's so relevant still today. He says, How little time the average Christian spends in prayer. We are too busy to pray, and so we are too busy to have power. (laughs) We're too busy to have power. That's funny, I think, a little bit. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery programs, right? But few results. The power of God is lacking in our lives and in our work. We have not because we ask not. Many professed Christians confessedly do not believe in the power of prayer. It's quite the fashion with some to contemptuously contrast the prayers, those praying people, with the doers forgetting that in the history of the church, the real doers have been prayers and that the men and women who have made the glorious part of the church's history have been without exception men and women of prayer and of those who believe theoretically in the power of prayer, not one in a thousand realizes its power. He's even saying, calling us out, even those we say we believe in prayer, but, but our, our, our practice, our exercise of it and our dependence on it sort of betrays us, right? And, and shows to what extent we really do understand the power that is ours through prayer. He continues, how much time does the average Christian spend daily in prayer? How much time do you spend daily in prayer? It was a masterstroke of the devil when he got the church and the ministry so generally to lay aside the mighty weapon of prayer. The devil is perfectly willing that the church should multiply organizations and its deftly contrived machinery for the conquest of the world for Christ if it will only give up praying. <clears throat> he laughs softly as he looks at the church of today and he says, under his breath, you can have your Sunday school and your your YMCAs and your YWCAs and all these other things, your YPSCEs and your BYPUs and your Epworth Leagues and your WCTUs and boys' brigades and your institutional churches and your men's clubs and your grand choirs and your fine organs and brilliant preachers and your revival efforts even If you don't bring them into the power of almighty God, sought and obtained by earnest, persistent, believing, mighty prayer. The devil's not afraid of machinery. He's afraid of God. And machinery without prayer is machinery without God. And our day is characterized by the multiplication of man's machinery and the diminution of God's power sought and obtained by prayer. Wow. Wow. Other than YMCA, because of the song, I don't know what the rest of the YWCA, I don't know what all those other acronyms were, but let's just fill in some of the the things, some of our machinery, right? So Satan is laughing at you can have your adventure week. You can have your food bank. You can have your Project Hope and your band of brothers and men's and women's retreat. You can have children's ministry in Sunday school. You can have junior high and high school 412 on Wednesday nights. You can f- uh, send your money to California schools projects and missionaries like the Whitmers and the Congo. You can have all that machinery as long as you don't bring them into the power of the Almighty God sought and obtained by earnest, persistent prayer. Prayerlessness is a cause of unfruitfulness. I see this in the text because Jesus says, well, this, this didn't happen because you didn't pray. But the interesting thing is, is in Mark 6, what did Jesus expressly given them authority to do? Remember? He says, I've given you authority. He, he gets the 12 together. He pairs them up and he's about to send them out. And he says, I give you authority over the unclean spirits. And he sends them out to go preach and cast out demons. So he had given authority, but then here they're, they're powerless, Right? It teaches us something, I think, about how spiritual gifts work and how calling works. That just because we go with the authority of Christ doesn't mean that we are independent from him or don't need prayer, that prayer is not necessary if God has given a spiritual gift. Prayer isn't for picking up the slack where my spiritual gifts stop. Look at this for a minute, 1 Corinthians 12. I think this makes sense of how Paul talks about spiritual gifts here. Notice what what are the parallels to gifts. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, so gifts are service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So gifts aren't just your skill set your talents that you were born with, and now you're going to use them for God, although our talents and skills are all together, you know, given to us to be steward in that that way. But uniquely, spiritual gifts are activities and ministries and, and ways of serving other believers and the world in a variety of different ways that the Spirit empowers in each. So it's not like an X-Men power that he just gives you when you became a Christian. Your powers are evangelism and wisdom. And then you just go exercise those whenever you want, and it's always going to be successful or fruitful. You just got those, right? That's not how spiritual gifts work. I was thinking about the way Paul talks about his preaching uh, in 1 Corinthians in the opening chapters. And here's a guy, guy that clearly was called by God to go preach and obviously gifted by God to preach. But he says, remember when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech wasn't with lofty words of eloquence, but I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified so that... Um, your faith would not rest in the power of men, but in the power of God. What is Paul saying there? Well, he's saying that my spiritual gifting is not uh, something in me that I just get done. No, I want it to be clear that this was God's power at work and he used this, right? So think about evangelism isn't just eloquence or you're really good at apologetics and defending your faith, but it's God blessing your evangelistic effort whether that falls in your skill set and the top of your list of strengths or not. In fact, I think God delights to to make fruitful evangelism through people who aren't the most eloquent and aren't the, 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 the mightiest philosophical apologetic minds. Go look up sometime how Charles Spurgeon came to Christ. Look up his conversion story. You'll find it online. Do a Google search. You'll find it immediately. Some poor blue-collar guy who showed up to church one Sunday morning because the pastor couldn't get there because it was too much snow got up and opened the text and just did his best, And, and Spurgeon came to Christ. Go read the rest of it. It's a great story. But gifts function like this, not apart from dependence on God, but as God empowers, which tells me just because God has uh, used you in a particular way in the past doesn't guarantee that the next time he will, apart from being dependent on him, God wants to be glorified through these gifts, right? Not just you to be glorified through these gifts. Say more, but we're almost out of time. So uh, one last application I want to suggest with that is maybe if you're thinking, I've always thought, I don't know how God spiritually gifted me. You're sort of waiting around until God reveals what your X-Men power is in in the church. And once I do, then I'm going to get at it. Maybe instead of uh, taking a Scantron test to figure out your strengths and weaknesses isn't the way that you're going to figure it out, but maybe it's going to happen by you opening the bulletin and looking, what are opportunities presented right now that our little congregation here needs in this season? And you say, well, some of those don't seem like my strength, but prayerfully, I'm going to willingly put myself out there and see what happens. Who knows? Maybe God intends for you in this season to gift you in that way in our church because we need it and he's going to apportion it as he sees fit. Last point. Our unfruitfulness reflects on Jesus. By the way, this is what happens. I preach at La Mirada. They have 15 minutes less in the service. So I come here, I think, oh, I got all the time in the world and I just take my time and we're still almost out of time. So here's our last point is unfruitfulness can reflect on Jesus. Um, which means that a faithless approach to life that leads to much prayerlessness, which leads to very little fruit in our life, can ultimately reflect on Jesus. It can lie about his power, right? I see this here because Mark's the only one who actually includes at the beginning that there's an argument going on in the first place and that scribes are there arguing. It doesn't take too much imagination to see, okay, well, what's going on here? Well, the disciples in Jesus' name can't cast out this demon. It is they're enable. You can see how that would bolster the scribes. See? It's Jesus. There's an argument going on. Maybe some in the crowd are saying, no, 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 but we still believe it. And others saying, well, I don't know, you know, and Jesus comes in. And there's an argument going on. And I think that it's undermined the father's faith a bit, right? Think about it. This man's son has been possessed since childhood. How many times he's, he's gone to people probably to get help, to no avail. And now he's come. And the fact that he's here with his boy tells you what about how he thinks of Jesus, There's some belief there, right? That this man is different and he can help me. He's there. But notice by the time he gets to Jesus through the disciples in failure, his, his faith, I think is smaller. Now he's looking at Jesus after saying, well, your disciples couldn't. And he's saying, but if you can do anything, have compassion, right? His faith has even taken a hit to some degree, seeing the, the, the the unfruitfulness here in, in his disciples, And I think it would be, be true for us, a Christian life that is that impotent and, and, and does not reflect in, in, in much of any way um, the, uh, the calling to which we've been called or a church that by and large doesn't seem to really have any impact in, in people's lives to help them grow and their faith to grow and to comfort them in suffering and to encourage them and to, and, and to make them missional and bold. It lies about the power of the gospel. And thankfully, the reverse is also true. Fruitfulness in in the church can reflect on Jesus. It can point to the power of the gospel, right? That's why Jesus said, John 15, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and you prove to be my disciples. Not that by this will you be glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples, but my Father will be glorified when my church is fruitful. So ultimately, why do we want God to help our unbelief and help our faith to grow and our prayerfulness to grow and fruit to be there? Ultimately, not just so that that we can pat ourselves on the back for more fruit, but so that God would be glorified in the one who who is over the whole process from beginning to end. As we conclude, I just want us to be encouraged by this, is that the disciples do end up getting it, right? When you go to Acts, If there's one thing that you see that the 12 have learned, it's that this ship is going to sink if we don't pray, right? So Acts 1, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're gathered, they're praying and fasting and the Spirit falls and the church begins to grow. And then what are they doing? As Peter and John are hauled off into court and beaten and then left, you know, you know to, to, to leave bloody. They're gathered and they're praying against the enemies of God that he would continue to stretch out his hand and make them bold and on and on. What are they doing in Acts 13 when the church is established? They're fasting and praying and saying, now what, God? And, and he sends out missionaries and they got it. Right? And I'm encouraged that because we can get it too. That God can grow faith in us and prayerfulness in us and, and make our church fruitful in a way that brings him glory. And I want to pray to that end. It's the reason why we do House of Prayer. It's not to add a program that then we feel good about ourselves if you attend it. We feel good if lots of people attend House of Prayer. But it's this sense of, we want to be a church that doesn't just pray individually, but as a church says, we need help. God, we want you to make this place a fruitful place that doesn't lie about you and your power and the gospel. So as we finish, we're going to sing one last hymn. Let me pray uh, for that. God, thank you that the the. the the glimpse we get of your character through the face of Jesus in this scene is very patient. You're patient with your disciples. You're you're patient and and gentle with this father who calls your your ability to heal into question. And and, and you you meet our, our little faith with more demonstration of your trustworthiness and your grace, and your power. God, I pray that you would. I pray you would answer prayers. I pray you would answer this prayer we prayed in the middle of the service for our missionaries in a clear way that reminds us your ability and your willingness that would fuel our faith more and make us be more prayerful. Lord, I long to see our, our church here, Grace Fullerton, and Grace La Marotta and every gospel preaching church here in our city be uh, prayerful, fruitful <coughs> churches that people are drawn to uh, because... Uh, because you're you're alive and at work here. So we pray this for us in Jesus' name, amen.